Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to 2015. Who would have thunk it? We made it. I can remember sitting in elementary school and thinking how old I'd be when we get to the year 2000. And here we are, 15 years later. It's all gravy now. You have once again found yourself with me, Chris, in your earbuds. Whether you're out on your frozen roads or the tropical Antipodian outback, I'm thrilled and honored to be your running-related mental succubus today. Well, it's been a quiet week out here in Independence, Kansas, along the banks of Spring Creek. As I look out onto the frost-covered acreage, I can see groups of feral yaks cavorting in the sleet. Except for those sick ones, they don't look so good. They're in rough shape with fur falling out in bunches, and they walk with a strange, stiff-legged lurch. I called the local animal control officer out, and he should be here shortly. It's that government neurotoxin research facility. I know it is. Well, the the beat-up F-150 of Dick, the animal control officer, just pulled into the field, and I think he's the manager of the local Grange, too, and he's out of the truck, and he's approaching the yaks, and oh, my God, they're attacking. They've got him down. Heavens to Murgatroyd, they're eating his brains. They're zombie yaks. That's it. I've had enough of the Midwest. I'm moving back to New England. By the way, zombie yaks would make an awesome name for a punk rock band. Yeah, so how about that running stuff? Well, I've dropped into my training for Boston. I've had a small setback (coughs) with going on vacation for a week and coming down with a vicious cold. I've got an interesting challenge this year with my heart acting up. (laughs) I can train in Zone 2 all day long, but Zone 3 and Zone 4 is uh, dicey. So I'm going to have to figure out how to train with a missing gear while I get this sorted out. The issue is that the tempo stuff is where my arrhythmia kicks in. And instead of going from Zone 2 into Zone 3 and Zone 4, it flips out and goes from like Zone 2 to max. But that's not really what's happening. It reads as max HR, but what's really happening is the heart muscles are out of sync and the blood isn't getting to where it needs to be to support the effort. And so it's the equivalent of missing a gear or a, or having a flat spot in the transmission where you lose power. And it doesn't do me any good to tough it out because I'm not getting the benefit of training while my heart's working ineffectively. So I talked to Coach and we're working on training – you know, the things I can control, they're still effective. Since I have no problem in zone two, we're just going to continue to build a giant base, push those weekly runs up into 130, 145, two-hour range, those midweek runs, and push those long runs up too. And the other issue I have is the heart rate tends to flip out when I'm running uphill, right? With the increased load going up a hill, it causes the same thing. The arrhythmia kicks in, you lose power. So again, it doesn't do me any good to train in that state. So I have to figure out how to get my hill strength for Boston without doing hill work. So what can I control? I can control my nutrition. I can control my flexibility. I can control my strength. I can control my sleep sometimes even, although that's a struggle. 
And that leads me to my initial plan for Boston, which is to build a huge zone two base, get my weight down, back down to race weight. I put those 10 pounds back on and work my flexibility and work my strength. And I'm pretty excited about this experiment because it's a new challenge. It's like fighting with a hand tied behind my back and it'll force me to grow. And if the cardio doctors manage to fix something and then I can add in the the uh, the racing stuff, the tempo later in the cycle. And that stuff comes pretty quickly if you have the strength, flexibility, and the base. So today, I have a chat with Bruce Van Horn, who is a life coach and a marathoner. He's out of Virginia. And at first, I wasn't super attracted to Bruce when I listened to his stuff because it was basic positive thinking and self-esteem stuff delivered in a bit of a, you know, Mr. Rogers sort of narrative but I warmed to it and I thought it would be valuable to step back and look at some of these basic approaches to getting started on the right path in our running and in our lives. So I had a chat with Bruce and I had to get my, around my own prejudices, right? A couple, a couple of the notes that he talked about that resonated for me were first that the great mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation to quote our friend Henry over in Concord. Bruce is helping – those 95% of the people out there who just don't know where to start. They're going through the motions and they think they're the only ones that feel that way. And I also wanted to highlight, secondly, something that all of us take for granted, which is the positive correlation between our running, our endurance sports, and that self-esteem and self-worth. And as an added bonus, Buddy, the old wonder dog, chimes in in the background more than once. In the first section, I present a brief piece on how to start running towards something as opposed to running away. In the second section, I'm going to counterbalance all the basic self-improvement messaging with some thoughts on more advanced ideas for those of you who may be looking for the next level. And I woke up this morning hemorrhaging snot and blood with a full day of work on my plate, and I thought I might not get this show out. And actually, I was really wondering whether I would survive the day. But here I am. It's after 6 o'clock p.m., and I'm still going. And I think I just might make my deadline. So to hell with the head cold and the cold weather. It was minus 8 Fahrenheit yesterday here. And to hell with the zombie yak attacks. On with the show. I am grateful for the physical gifts that I've been given and my ability and choice to use them in a fulfilling way. Running away. At some point, we need to transition from running away to running towards. So why did you get into running? Was it to discover something about yourself? Was it to find some new truth? No, chances are it was not a journey towards self-discovery at first. Chances are you were running away. You were running away from a fatter, unhealthy version of yourself. You were running away from the stress of an inactive life. You used running as a crutch, a salve, an escape. You began small and then discovered that you had found a friend and a confidant. In some of us, it becomes an addiction even. Our running takes over our lives and blots out the other things. Our training crowds out temperance and relationships. It verges on a destructive habit and a taskmaster. We run the risk of becoming enslaved. As we age and the performances can no longer be achieved, we grope for replacements. We run more. We run longer instead of faster. We wrap ourselves in the society of the sport and build a sandcastle of false gods by hoping that running quantity can replace the goodness of those first couple of hits. At some point, we have to stop this running away. At some point, we have to pull ourselves back from the fire and decide that we are going to run towards. How do we kindle the flame that burned in our running soul, but tame it to keep it in our hearth? The way, as with all things, is first to find our center, to find the place of peace within our mental dustbins, to realize that sense of self that allows us to do all things, even this, and to ask better questions. A question like, how can I get faster? 
is a paradox. There is no end point to that quest. A better question is, how do I construct a physically and mentally healthy lifestyle with my running as my partner in life? For those of you beginning your running journey, don't be afraid to test the edges. But realize that you can go too far. Running like alcohol or heroin can't fill the empty places in your soul. Running can mask the pain that you're running away from, but you need to use this breathing space to discover what you're running towards. Your goal, as I have always warned you, is not your next race or your next PR. Your goal is to have a good and worthy journey. For you mid-career runners who have found your strength and are setting those PRs and conquering those distances, sit down and celebrate it. Every one of those marathons that you fume away from convinced you could have done better if you had only trained harder or longer, they're a gift. Take them as a gift and enjoy and celebrate each one. There will come a time where those achievements are unattainable. If you celebrate these achievements now, you can look back on them as times of joy instead of times of difficulty. Take the time to celebrate each race and each day of training with the gift of running. For you veterans sliding off the backsides of your career, keep moving. Find each new chapter's sweet spot and revel in it. We are gods. We are gifted. We run with a golden glow because we know what it is to try, to strive, to do, to achieve, and to celebrate. And I know this sounds a bit new agey or maybe even a tad morose, but it's not. I'm saying that you have found a successful balance with your sport when you can look at the journey as a whole and smile upon it. That's when you will be running towards something, and you can stop running away. And now for today's featured interview. So, Bruce, one of my friends pointed your your podcast out to me over the holidays, and I listened to a couple of them, and it, it struck me that uh, a lot of your work, a lot of your, your ministry, as it were, w- uh-huh. is, is on helping people with sort of getting started and overcoming their self-esteem and, and self-empowerment yeah. issues. Absolutely. And I find that a lot of times in the, not necessarily work, because this is a hobby for me, but for me, I'm, I'm starting with the assumption that people are different <laughs> at a higher level. So I thought it would be uh, useful to talk through that, because... I'm struck by the relationship between running and self-esteem. Yeah. And so why don't you go ahead and give us the the 200 words or less on uh, who you are and what you do. Oh, gosh. Um, 200 words or less is a challenge for a guy who does an hour-long monologue podcast. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so uh, I am a life coach. I am an author, a speaker. I'm a dad. I'm a single single dad of two boys, so that keeps me super busy. Um, what else? I'm a business owner, and yeah, I, I do a lot of work with people, helping them, you know, really kind of build or, you know, get to the level of life that they they want. A lot of people come to me for life coaching with very specific goals. Maybe they want to be better in sales. Maybe they want to be better husbands or, or wives or, or whatever. You know, they, they may have a specific goal that they want to work on, and I'm happy to work with them on that. But what I usually find is that the reason that they haven't been able to get to the level that they want to get to is really because of their thinking. And so they've tried all the programs. They've bought all the books. We have to to scrape away all of the scar tissue, and we have to unteach a lot of things that they've just accepted as truth in their lives before we can really do the work that they originally contacted me for to begin with. And you're, you're a runner too, right? I am a marathon runner, yep. yep, and in fact, that's actually what got me in this line of work. Exactly, and, and so, I've always said that running, especially marathon running, is transformational if you do it right. It is, it is, absolutely. And so, that's what, like I said before, it struck me the relationship between self-esteem 
and running specifically, but just in general, some sort of positive activity like that can yeah. have a snowball effect. So what do you tell your, your folks in terms of getting in shape or whatever it is that is that can have that one step at a time snowball snowball effect? Well, yeah, so so let me back up and just tell you a little bit about how how I got here. Um when I was forty two years old, I um I was reasonably successful by most people's standards, but I absolutely hated my life. I was miserable. I was just going through the motions. I was not doing any kind of work that was in line with my passions. I was just making a dollar. I I had suffered many, many personal and financial setbacks. By this time, I had filed bankruptcy twice in my life. I was in a, a marriage that just was not working for a lot of reasons. My wife had significant mental health issues. At that point, I had a six and a half, almost seven year old son and a one year old son. So my boys are six years in between, six years between them. In between my two boys, we had a daughter who passed away. And at that point, I was feeling like I was this. 150 pound weakling in a boxing ring with Mike Tyson or Muhammad Ali or whoever the latest greatest boxers are these days and I was just getting pummeled for me a good day was going to bed and nothing really really tragic happened that day and you know so my the the favorite parts of my day were looking forward to going to bed and when you string a whole bunch of those days together and you string a whole bunch of those months and years together, come to find out, I thought I was the only one. But sadly enough, that's how I, I think a, an overwhelming majority of people live. We're just going through the motions from one day to the next. We have no real specific plan. Um, we're just sort of d- reacting to life as it comes at us rather than being actively in control of our lives. And really what it boiled down to for me was um, not really realizing that I am 100% in control of all of my thoughts about everything. I always thought you know, that I, I had this victim mode thinking, and I see this on Twitter a hundred times a day when I send out a, a tweet about, you know, so something motivational or positive or encouraging countless times a day, I'll get somebody who says, yeah, it's easier said than done. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so, so is going to the bathroom, right? Or, or, you know, or it, you're not, maybe, or you're not being realistic. Yeah, it, exactly. But so here, here's the deal. When I was 42, my older brother came to Richmond, Virginia to run the Richmond Marathon. We had both been runners when we were in high school. We both ran on our high school cross-country team, but he kept it up throughout his adult life. I didn't. I quit running the day I graduated from high school and you know had no interest. So he came to town, and he ran the Richmond Marathon. I took my six-year-old down there to see him, and that was all fun. He came and spent the night with us. And over dinner, he said, Bruce, you should do this. And I laughed out loud. And I said, first of all, Mark, I, I live at home. I work from home. And everything that I want or need is within a five-minute drive of my house. So unless I'm going on vacation, I don't even like to drive 26 miles, let alone think about running it. And I just don't think I could do it. I haven't run since I was high school. And now my brother never considered himself any kind of motivational speaker or, you know, any, you know, a guy who has a positive outlook on life. But he said something to me that totally changed my life. He said, Bruce, the hardest part about running a marathon is making the decision to try. Mm -hmm. He said the rest of it's mental. Yeah, the the physical part, he said a marathon is 90% mental. I did not believe him. Did not believe him at all. But, so I thought, you know, if my older brother can run marathons, I could at least join our local YMCA and hit the treadmill and try to get in shape so that I'm not completely out of breath after 10 minutes of playing with my boys. So I did. I joined the Y. I hit the treadmill. 
And I went three days a week, and it was easily a month before I could jog. And, and I'm using that word very loosely, you know, before I could plod on a treadmill and go one mile without stopping to walk. Right. So I was discouraged. I thought, you know, I thought, you know, there's just no way. I can't even run a mile. How am I going to run 26 miles? But as soon as I hit a, a mile without walking, something inside of me snapped or, or came into alignment. And it was only a week later that I was running two miles on the treadmill without walking. And then another, like two weeks after that, I was running three miles. And so this time it's getting to be spring. And so I joined a local 5K to raise some money for some charity. And that was fun. And so I ran a 10K with some friends. And that was fun. And less than one year later, my older brother came back to Richmond to run the Richmond Marathon again, and I ran with him, and I beat him by over 45 minutes. And, and I, in, I, in that process, though, what you find yeah, is you're yeah, starting to yeah, take so control there, of your own life. The, yeah, they, there's what happened and what completely changed my life was as I started running, I did start – I started to hear my brother's words echo – in my head again, that the hardest part about running a marathon is making the decision to try. And I found out that he was right. And then I started thinking to myself, well, however, how many other things are there in my life that I'm either not trying or I'm just convinced I'll never be who it is I want to be. I'll never achieve some level of success. I'll never have a, a happy outlook on life. And so marathon training taught me that absolutely everything is possible with the right mindset. So I started devouring all kinds of self-help, personal development books. So I, I started devouring all of that and trying to apply this idea to lots of different areas of my life. And actually, one of the first places I applied it was to my finances. I had filed bankruptcy twice at this point. We were still reeling from the the huge medical bills that we had encountered um, when my daughter died. And then because my, my wife had many, many ongoing medical issues, uh, we were just barely getting by financially. Even though I was making pretty good money, everything that was coming in the door was going out just as fast. And I had no idea how to handle the money. And so I actually attended a Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University class. And he uses this same idea of spending your money intentionally. And it just completely resonated with me. And, and while there are many things in my life that I can't take control of, I discovered that I was able to take control of a whole lot more of my life than I was previously willing to admit. And I, I moved from victim mode thinking to being an intentional thinker and, and taking back control of my life. So I, I applied it to my finances. I applied it to just my outlook on life. So, and, so Bruce, when you're, when, you're, yeah. when you're working with your clients, right? And you, you know, you said before you have to sort of dig deep and scrape off the rust to get them thinking about the right things. But the first thing you have to do is get them moving in the right direction, right? Exactly. And how right. do you set them up to take a big enough step so they get the the success and the momentum, but not not a failure? You know what I'm saying? You could also set them yeah. up to try something and fail and go, "See, I told you so. I told you I couldn't do it." Yeah. Right? So how do you change yeah. that? How do you set them up? Well, first of all, if they've come to me and um, they're, they're, they're paying a significant amount of money to come to me anyway, so they desperately want this to work. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's a good sign to begin with, that they, they already realize that they, they want to take their life to the next level. But just like for me, and I apply it to 
to how I became a marathon runner. When my brother said, you know, you should run a marathon, I laughed at him and I said, there's just no way. And so when I joined the, the Y and hit the treadmill, I did not have any kind of goal that said, Bruce, you're going to run a marathon next year. And if I had, I think within the first month, I would have quit. Mm. My goal was to, all right, let's see if I can get back to a certain level of shape where I can run one mile without walking. That was my goal. And then I had a new goal. You know, so, so I built momentum. I set myself up for success rather than for failure. And so one of the things that I absolutely require all of my clients to do is start journaling. And journaling means lots of things to lots of different people. I've been journaling now for years, and it really takes me less than 10 minutes. I don't sit down and write down all of my thoughts. You know, some days I do. Some days I just... I pour it out. I, I treat my journal like a psychotherapist and I just write paragraph after paragraph. My journaling is very specific. I start off every single morning making a list of five things that I'm thankful for. Okay, and so that's so that's um that's fairly so, common. That's the you know, what am I grateful for each morning? It's a gratitude. Yeah. Exactly. So there's a, gr right. a gratitude journal. Right. And some days that's really, really, really hard to do because, yes. you know, you, you might be thinking, you know what, today I'm just not thankful for anything. Well, that sort of creates a repetitive cycle and that's the way your day usually goes. Right. But so some days I, I, you know, I started off on this process by saying, you know, I, I'm thankful for mini wheats. Yeah, today I'm thankful for milk and mini wheats and being very sarcastic about it. And then, but I forced myself to do it. And I noticed that as the days went on and I was doing this every single day, my gratitude list did become more significant. I'm thankful for the very life that I have, for my boys. I'm thankful for my friends, my relationships. I'm thankful for the money that I do have. And as I started to appreciate the things that I have, then more things, you know, I don't know where you are or where your listeners are with the, the whole, where they fall on the, the scale of their belief in the law of attraction or, or anything like that. But there is this universal law and it's even for those. No, I think, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it boils down in the, in the secular world, it boils down to just having an attitude of abundance versus exactly. an attitude abundance of scarcity. Versus scarcity. I don't think there's any any woo woo mystery to it. If you go none, into none if you go into your world with an attitude of abundance, you're going to get more yeah. come back to you. Ex exactly. Because so, frankly, the world doesn't want to have anything to do with you if you go into it with an attitude of scarcity, right? No. So so no. when you get people and that and that was me. All my friends used to call me Eeyore yeah. <laughs> because I was so negative and pessimistic and they and they see me now. If I if I run into somebody I haven't talked to in in 5 years, they are like who are you and what happened to the old Bruce who thought life sucked? Wow. You know, because I, yeah. you know, I'm, and another thing you'll find Bruce is that when you, if you like you did had made a made a pretty big mental change there. You probably had to move. Uh, you probably had to throw had some to throw some people yeah. off your bus as well. I did. Yeah, I had to shed a lot of weight, not just on my own body, but uh, a lot of emotional and and friendship baggage. Um, yeah, because you do become more and more like the people that you hang out with. The, so the gratitude journal, I I do every single day. The other thing that I do every single night is I look back through my day and I record what's called a victory log. And actually, I, I've gotten to the point where I, I keep it on my iPhone. I use an app called Evernote. Yeah. And I use it on my laptop and my iPad and wherever I am. I'm never, you know, more than a, you know, a, a couple clicks away from Evernote. So I, I have a, sure. a file on Evernote just called victory log. And I just keep adding things to the top. So the newest ones are at the top and it just keeps pushing them down. Anything good that happens, like as soon as we're going to get off this Skype call, I'm going to record this as something that I enjoyed doing today. And right. so I write down the things that went well. Um, I never, ever write down the things that I didn't do well. 
because I just don't want to think about those. I, I know what they are. But again, going back to this idea of what we spend most of our time thinking about or focusing on, we get more of that in our lives. I do not believe that we learn from our failures. I don't. We learn from our successes. Now, in our failures, you know, if we learn from our failure, it's probably because there was something that we can call a success in the failure. But let's I, I like to look at our successes and set ourselves up for success, set ourselves up for victory rather than failure. So, yeah, if you've got this negative mindset, then it's going to take some time. It, it took, you know, we're all works in progress. So, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to slip back into that mode. But now, now I catch myself and I, I don't do it very often, but the, the forcing myself to be grateful and the forcing of myself to record everything that happened today that I want more of in my life. Right. So I I and went that, to the that, grocery store and I smiled at the clerk and I said, "Hope you're having a great day." And she said, "Hey, thanks. That really helped me." Yeah. And it, I write I write that down because that's what I want more of in my life. Right. I, and that sets you up for the next day too. Exactly. So. You know, if you were to sit back and say, okay, what's my methodology here just from us talking, it's find that small step or those positive steps, that progress that you can make, right, that gives you that momentum, and then reinforce it through affirmations and, you know, the the journaling to make sure that you sustain that change, right? Because a lot of people will make progress and then slip back. Because they they don't change their environment and they don't have those uh, habits like you're talking about that make it sustainable as well, right? Right, exactly. Right. So that's that's very important to consolidate those gains. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish with an interesting question because one of the things I like about about running and marathons and frankly, you know, about traveling and and the work that I do is the adventure element of it. And I think there's a positive correlation there. It's not just, you know, the achievement, but it's the adventure. So what are your thoughts on, you know, the correlation between adventure and self-esteem and, and, and progress? So I'll go back to the guy I was. You know, I, I had these grand dreams of maybe someday going to do fun things or go on great vacations. But you know, we we pretty much just always went to the same place every year. But 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 you just sort of get stuck in that rut of who you are. A person, you know, there are so many benefits to having a high self-esteem and a high self-worth and a, a positive outlook because you tend to look for adventure everywhere and you tend to, to look for the good things. And so now when somebody says, you know, hey, you want to go you know, wherever, you know, for example, I'm, I'm going to be the life coach on a, uh, a Caribbean cruise in February. Oh, I was going to and, say, if it was January, I might be on that boat. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and, you know, and, and the other cool thing is that I, I'm going to run the Boston marathon in April. And, you know, I, the, the cool thing is that it's going to be one year almost to the day. It, it's actually going to be a one year and one week. Uh, because in April of this year, I was laying in a hospital bed recovering from major cancer surgery that had complications. So that's the other thing that I don't want um, your listeners to, to get confused. Just because you're, you, you change your attitude and you no longer feel like a victim of life, it doesn't mean that bad things don't still happen. You know, but it's, it's how we deal with them now. Yeah, you're you know, you're, had, you're much more resilient though, and you're better at you, dealing you with are. them. Exactly. So yeah, so I I had major cancer surgery in April, but yeah, so I I am in I am a much more adventurous spirit now than I was. I'm open to trying all kinds of different things. Um, you know, everything from from sushi to you know if someone's got some kind of food that I've never even tried uh, tried before and the previous version of Bruce would have just said oh no I don't like that and yeah. someone would have said well have you ever tried it and I would said no I just know I don't like it 
And you know, I don't do that anymore. Well, you you certainly have uh, blossomed from your chrysalis into a into a butterfly here, Bruce. And I think you'll enjoy you. Boston. It's one of my favorite things to do. I love um, Boston. So uh, I'm. Yeah, so I'm gonna let you. Uh, I'm gonna let you go because we're running a little long on time. But why sure. don't you give me your links and what what you want people to to find about you and and that sort of thing. Yeah, super easy. Uh, I'm BruceVanHorn.com on Twitter. I'm BruceVH, and on Facebook, I'm facebook.com forward slash Bruce VH. I'm a very findable kind of guy. You can just go to Google and type in Bruce Van Horn and I'm more than likely the person who will come up. Yeah, so I, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to, to talk with you and yeah, always love connecting with fellow runners. Yeah, and I think uh, it sounds to me like you're really enjoying your, your new life, so to speak, your new skin. So so keep it up and uh, keep learning it. And, uh, Great. and we'll we'll see you out on, on the course at Boston, maybe. Okay, perfect. All right, man, I'm going to let you go. Uh, all right, get sounds on good. My, yeah. i, I got to get on to my next adventure. If I have planted one seed, I am happy. If I have nudged one thought, I am satisfied. The next time we meet, we will both be different people, but our common base of understanding will have grown. Advanced self-improvement ideas for your new year. So it's that time of year. Whether we like it or not, we're forced into some New Year's introspection and planning. We take stock of the old year and wonder what we can do differently to or, or improve in the new year. And I'm not a life coach, but I share some I'm I'm gonna share some thoughts that may help you align your thoughts and your actions. So there are a couple basic things that we have to consider as we progress through these exercises. First, everyone's in a different place, but we're all trying generally to do the same thing, improve. But depending on where you're starting, your approach may be a little different. It's necessarily different. You may think that this is unique to you, but everybody's going through the same process. Different people start in different places. Everyone starts somewhere. At the very bottom and basic level, You may be just starting your journey. You may be waking up to the fact that you're caught in a trap. You are snared in a life that is physically or mentally disabling, and you're out of control. So don't worry. You're not alone. You are not the exception. You are the rule. The great mass of men and women lead lives of quiet desperation. The root of the problem is that when we are young, Most of us don't get any education in directing our own lives. We get school and family, but we get kicked into the world with no life plan other than the vague expectations of society. And into this void, the industrial workplace steps to tell you that the most important thing in your life plan is to get a job, a house, and a family with 1.5 kids. And that's how they get an educated workforce and a grinding economic machine. And the Hollywood culture steps into the void to distract us from all our malaise as well. They tell us that our happiness is dependent on being beautiful, driving a fast car, having sex with other beautiful people every chance we get. That's the empty cultural validation that fills the void in our life plans. And then you wake up in your 30s, two mortgage payments away from bankruptcy with a job you hate, dysfunctional relationships, and somewhere along the line your body went sideways on you too. Yep. All men and women lead lives of quiet desperation. What happens now? Now, now you need an epiphany. For those who are just waking up, who are starting their journeys, they need to hit a turning point in their road. We've all heard the stories. They go to the doctor and are told they need to go on cholesterol drugs. They wake up hungover and depressed. They have some life-threatening accident or illness, or just maybe you sit down at the beginning of a fresh new year and say, enough is enough. Time to take some action. If you are in this early phase of your transition, you have had the epiphany and decided to change, now you need to take action, right? Very simple. Many people will go through this exercise in a negative way. They will look at the things that they are unhappy with in their lives and try to change them in the next year. You know, what are all those bad habits that somehow magically we're going to change or stop? I'd say don't do that. 
there's some reason you're doing that negative habit, and it probably has to do with your negative self-esteem or how you value yourself. Don't stack up all the things you want to change on January 1st. Just take one or two positive, sustainable actions. This might even take the form of admitting you don't have the resources to make the change and getting a coach for that part of your life you want to change. Now, whatever your positive action is, keep it simple so that you can build momentum, set yourself up to succeed, build on that momentum. Now you're on your journey, and we'll see you next year. Great. That methodology for beginners is as follow. Make a decision. Take some small positive action. Make it sustainable. Repeat. For example, you decide to change, i.e. get in shape, stop smoking, lose weight, blah, blah, blah. And you make a decision to simply walk for five minutes a day. That's a small, sustainable action. You can build on that. Set a goal of 30 days, for example, to make it measurable. Set yourself up to win. Now, that's all well and good, but what about the more advanced among you? What if you have managed your life fairly well? What if you already made those basic changes to your life and are now stuck looking for the next step? What's the advanced methodology to get to that next level? And how do you hack it? How do you get there? The basic methodology is the same. Decide to make the change, take the positive action, make it measurable and sustainable. But you've already got all the low-hanging fruit, right? Where do you look for change that is not just incremental, not just more of the same? Well, the first place you can look is through a process we in the business world call segmentation. This simply means how you can chunk up your life into logical groupings that have similar traits or aspects. The value of segmentation is that by grouping and aggregating around traits or areas or categories, you can gain insights that you normally wouldn't see. So applied to your life, how does that work? Well, this typically ends up being categories like career, health, family, community, spiritual, relationships, right? And when you first start out with basic life improvement activities, they tend to be spread across these areas. And there's usually low-hanging fruit that is a keystone habit that supports growth in multiple areas. For example, you start an exercise program that helps your self-esteem and positively cascades over into your career and your family and your relationships. Got it? Great. If you're in the position where you're looking to make more advanced life changes, you can use this segmentation to look at one specific area of your life that could benefit from a step change. It should be obvious to you when you start to run down your checklist. You'll get to one area and realize that you've been avoiding change there because of fear or pain. And then you can apply your methodology specifically to that area. For example, for example, your family is great. Your health is great. Your spiritual life is awesome. But your career is nothing special. I'm just making this up, guys. I'm just making up this example. Then you can ask the question, what positive action can I take to start the change in this area in my career? What we'll tend to do is continue to make incremental improvements to the areas that we've already got under control. We try to convince ourselves that this is positive action, where in reality, we're just hiding from the elephant in the room. So the second tool, that was the first tool, segment. The second tool I'd like you to consider when trying to set advanced goals or improvement initiatives is to find the high stakes ground. And what do I mean by high stakes ground? Well, that's the place for you where there is a high perceived risk, a high degree of uncertainty, and the stakes are high. Why do you think sales leaders, startup CEOs, and commodities traders, why do you think they get paid so much money? Because the stakes are high. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Chris, you're insane. Why would anybody embrace these high-stress, high-stakes jobs. Don't we spend our lives trying to get away from this stress? No, I'm not insane. I don't think so, anyhow. Maybe I should get checked. But the reason you want to look for areas of high stakes is because they are also areas of high leverage. These are the places that will force you to stand and fight. The high-stakes ground 
is where you will be called upon to make an accounting of yourself. High stakes ground in any of your life areas will force you to learn quickly. Your self-confidence will be tested and you'll be forced to face your fears. The self-growth from these situations is exponential. In business, playing in the high stakes ground, whether you win or lose, will jump you forward in your career and make you lots of money. In your relationship, health, family, community, spirituality, the high stakes ground will lead to hard conversations and step changes in your quality of life. Now, the caution here is that you need to have done that basic work on your self-esteem and self-value first before you venture into the high-stakes ground. And if you don't, if you don't like yourself or you're not confident in your strengths and weaknesses and abilities, the high-stakes ground is an exercise in self-destruction. So do the basic stuff first. And finally, the third advanced tool I'd like you to think about is leveraging others. Many times, life improvement initiatives, by definition, are a self-inspection exercise. How do I get better? But when you get to the point where you have swept out the cobwebs and trash from your own life, you can begin to leverage others. Take that segmentation exercise we just did and look at each of these areas and ask the question, what kind of big improvement could I make? What kind of impact could I have? If I were able to assemble a team to work on this, this is a step change. It's easy to work within your own control, but inspiring and managing a team will take a giant slug of personal growth on your part. For many people, this in itself is high-stakes ground because to work with a team requires a clear vision and the ability to communicate that vision. To look at each area of your life and ask, what would the team look like for me to make this big leap? An example might be starting a foundation for your spiritual community endeavors and beginning to recruit people to join it towards some big goal. Or maybe in your career you realize that to take it to the next level, you will need a personal assistant or a contract CFO or to become the CEO yourself. I don't know what it is in your life, but these are some ideas to find opportunities for significant growth or change after you've done the basic work to get your life in line. And remember, this life we are given is not a static thing. We're a tribe of adventurers, and we cannot be happy resting on our laurels. It's a continuous journey. The methodology is the same, but the changes get more valuable as we progress. When we get through the basic life improvement initiatives, then we have an opportunity to really make a difference. And this is where we can make the inflection from fixing what's broken to investing in changing our world. This is the end, my only friend. No safety or surprise. The end. We'll never pass this way again. The end. That was a good one, bud. Well, my friends, we made it. Episode 4-303 out of the box and into the ether. I've got plenty of ideas and lots of life lessons to share. So let's keep going, shall we? Can I talk any of you into doing audio editing for the interviews for me? It's really quite simple. And I can train you. And it saves me an hour of production time. And you get to hear the interviews first, uncut. Some are awesome. They don't need any editing at all, but some need a bit more work. But I could use some help, so if you think you could pitch in, that would be great. Let me know. You know where to find me. What else have I got cooking? Well, I need to find a marathon to run before Boston so Boston can be my 50th marathon. I've kicked off my fundraising for Team Hoyt and will be dropping a video on you guys to tell you my plans and to beg for money. And so if you can spare, let's say, $2,260 as a donation, now's the time. Or even something smaller will work. <laughs> I can't laugh or I'll start coughing. I've got the book, the Marathon BQ book, through the first edit. So now I have to figure out how to get that through the birthing canal. Sigh. So many good ideas. So little time. 
And you know how I got myself sick, right? So I was going on this vacation over the New Year's, five-day vacation. And I decided I'd vacation and keep all my other stuff going as well. So this meant I'd stay up doing obscene things to obscene hours, celebrating with my family. And then I'd get up at 5 a.m. to do other stuff, you know, work out, run, write, you know, all that stuff too. And the plan was, you know, I'll catch a nap during the day because, hey, I'm on vacation. I'll nap. Everything will work out. I can get everything done. After about three days of this, I got myself sick. <laughs> and I lost not only all the time that I tried to save or create by doing this insane schedule, but also the benefit of the vacation. So why? Because I'm an idiot who can't relax. But I did get one super cool morning run in. New Year's Day, I rolled out at 5 a.m. I was staying in the JW Marriott nice nice hotel in downtown Miami on Key Biscayne and I headed out across the causeway um and the the little drawbridges over to Miami Beach so there's this road that goes over to Miami Beach which which is like a separate island across the intercoastal it was super surreal that park the bay park near the hotel was a scene of total carnage it was post apocalyptic with piles of crap and bottles and and occasionally a zombified reveler staggering by. And as I ran down the causeway road towards Miami Beach, I'd pass young women leaving houses in party dresses, holding their stilettos in their hands, doing the walk of shame, so to speak. And they'd look at me as if I was some sort of alien apparition. And as I got into South Beach, I passed very drunk and very friendly young men, who'd try to high-five me and miss. Very friendly, though. And so I stopped at a park around then and sat on a bench and did my five minutes of breathing meditation just to relax a little bit. Then I kept going out to the beach itself, which was another very surreal zombie apocalypse scene. Piles of empty champagne bottles, all kinds of people sleeping in piles on the beach and doing other things that weren't sleeping, and still more people wandering around like zombies in the pre-dawn darkness. And I stood on the beach and let the, the Atlantic Ocean there lap up against my, my hokas and watched the cruise ships come into the port with all their lights strung up. Very surreal, very interesting. Then I spun around and ran back, and the sun rose over my shoulders. I ran back to the hotel. Still the first one up when I got back. is about 10K in each direction, so about, you know, 12-something, 12, 12 and a half miles total. And, you know, that's the kind of surreal vacation adventure that isn't on any travel company's itinerary, right? So, my friends, keep doing what you're doing, and you will be sure to see me out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.